You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the Chris Spangle show. I've done a lot of interviews the last two days and I almost forgot what show I'm doing. Excuse me, dear listener, and especially to our guest, James Chernowski, who is here to talk about Section 230. There is a big Supreme Court case that is working its way, actually two, regarding Section 230, Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tamina. And our guest, James, is going to help us unpack this. What is the future of free speech on the internet? What is Section 230? James is James Chernowski is a policy senior policy analyst at Americans for Prosperity, a national think tank in D.C., a Young Voices contributor, and he writes a lot about Section 230, antitrust, consumer data, privacy, cybersecurity. I should have checked your biography. You're still with Americans for Prosperity, aren't you, James? Oh, absolutely. All right. I pulled it off of the Young Voices website. And you know how Caleb Franz, he just can't keep that thing updated. So, you know, <laughs> I always blame him whenever there's a problem. I know, right? Start with Section 230, because that is the crux of these two pieces, especially the Google v. Gonzalez court case that was heard last week, two weeks ago. At this point, yeah, no, recording. Now you said it. I'm losing track of time. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if that was just last week. It feels like tech move is so fast these days. But uh, yeah, those court cases were recently heard. And then Gonzalez v. Google and Twitter v. Tomla were having two different questions being asked here. And in Gonzalez v. Google, it's about whether or not Google should be held liable for having recommendations put on their webs that a user can see, right? And then in Twitter v. Tomna, it's not necessarily directly a 230 question. It's more trying to figure out whether or not Twitter could be held liable underneath the Anti-Terrorism Act, which would require them knowingly and substantially aiding and abetting a terrorist and carrying out a ter- an act of terrorism, which was an entirely separate kind of conversation that really had me, my ears just bleeding with a lot of legal jargon that I otherwise did not want to hear. So these are both very important cases, though, and how the court rules on them can have a very significant and direct impact on the speech of users online overall. So it was very critical that the Supreme Court was hearing these arguments. So what is Section 230? Let's start there. I know we've done shows on it, but just give a refresher for those who may not have heard it. Absolutely. So Section 230, otherwise known as the 26 words that created the Internet, is basically a tort reform law that seeks to ensure that liability is being imposed on the proper party. So, for example, if you are a website, any website on the Internet, you are not going to be treated as the publisher or speaker 
of what a third party says on your website. This is very important. This applies to any website, whether you're the New York Times or Facebook or any website that's on the internet, you all equally get this protection. And it just ensures that basically, as a website, you're not getting subjected to frivolous and endless lawsuits that could otherwise bankrupt you. So it's actually a very critical piece of legislation that was passed all the way back in 1996. That's had a significant impact in the development of the modern internet and our digital ecosystem that we currently enjoy right now. But I listened to Holly and Trump, and they said that it's a bad thing. So I don't know who to believe because they said that if we get rid of this thing, then we can fix all these social platforms. How's that going to work? It doesn't. (laughs) Simply put, it doesn't. Section 230 is, again, as a tort reform kind of style piece of legislation. It is meant to help protect websites from liability for things that they are not directly the speaker of. If two guys got into a fight in a bar and they trashed the joint, it doesn't make sense to hold the bar liable for those two guys getting into a fight. And that's the general principle that we're trying to ensure here as well. And if you were to go, if you were trying to go and reform or worse, repeal section 230, you're basically exposing these websites to liability for your speech, for my speech. And I'm not sure if you met any lawyers, but they are very protective of their client. And if they have to choose between hosting my speech or assuming potential liability for something I said on their platform, they're just not going to let me talk. And that's a bad outcome because I like talking. I like being able to talk with you and find all kinds of new channels of communication with people on the Internet. So I think that the damages that can come from a Section 230 reform or a repeal of Section 230, those costs far outweigh any potential benefits that Josh Hawley or others would like to claim are there. There was something that was talked about over the last couple days, and it was a Supreme Court case, I think Sullivan something, in 1964, where it basically gave protection to publications for talking about public figures. And several, a lot of conservatives want to repeal this law so they can start suing all the New York Times for libel because they're being slanderous. It's the same vein. Not realizing, James, that everything that now Tucker Carlson says or that the Daily Wire says would also be open and suable. And it it never really has made sense to me why conservatives would want to repeal Section 230, why they wouldn't want to support free speech, because this could go badly for their platforms too has there been any talk about it'll just affect facebook and twitter and we're going to stab them with a million lawsuits it's not really going to affect us because who's going to sue us because we're awesome (laughs) yeah that's true i think there certainly is some degree of blindness to how any of these proposals could in theory backfire on you if you were to pass them but at the end of the day, whether it's New York Times v. Sullivan or Section 230 getting overturned in the Sullivan case or getting reformed or repealed with 230, again, it's a liability problem. And I don't think people truly appreciate just how much speech is allowed on the internet overall. And I get why conservatives feel like it's not working for them, right? They look at the Hunter Biden story not, not being able to get distributed online when it first came out because it was labeled as misinformation and Russian propaganda trying to influence the election, right? So I understand why there's frustrations there when that's not the case. That's not what's been shown after we've looked at this closer for a longer period of time. So I get those frustrations, but at the end of the day, if the intention was censorship, let's say with that Hunter Biden story, it was an epic failure of massive proportions. Mm -hmm. Because when you looked at the searches for that story, when they took that action to go and prevent it from disseminating on their platforms, it skyrocketed. It got a Streisand effect, basically, right? 
So I think that even if that was the intention, it was a big miss. And I think that these companies do make plenty of mistakes. They make lots of wrong choices. But at the end of the day, conservatives are still the biggest net benefactors of having Section 230, of having a free and open internet that allows for speech to be online. You don't get the Daily Wire without Section 230. You're not exposed to seeing the Young Turks without Section 230. It is much more difficult in a world without Section 230 to be exposed to new and unique and different voices online than we otherwise want, which is something that I think conservatives have always been principled about. They truly believe in diversity of ideas, diversity of thought. And if you go down these proposals that are being considered here, you're actually going to go and cut off those avenues to have new voices enter the conversation to shape the narrative that might not otherwise have been possible before underneath the old media where they were treating conservatives badly too, which is why they ran to the internet. They felt like they could get a fair shake in mainstream media and then they took their voices to the internet and they blossomed there. So they have to be careful what they wish for here. I think that the costs are very high if they were to go and implement any of these kinds of changes that they're talking about here. I'm I love you, James. I'm not going to argue with you on much, but conservatives and free speech, all those stickers on my CDs in the 90s disagree with you. But that's a small point between friends. So Gonzalez v. Google, apparently Google allowed an ISIS video on their platform to be shown. And it was an ISIS recruitment video in 2017. Please tell me if I get any of these facts wrong. And so who is Gonzalez and why are they suing Google over an ISIS video? I'm going to be honest with you as a near free speech absolutist. um, I don't care if Google has ISIS recruiting videos on their platform. It's free speech. As an adult, I can say, you know what? I don't want to see ISIS recruiting videos, but Gonzalez apparently disagrees with me. Who are they? What are they suing about? And why do they care? Yeah, that's a great question. And when we're looking at Gonzalez v. Google, it's basically a family of one of the victims of a terrorist attack. And there, unfortunately, somebody did die, their child died, and that is a terrible thing. And it was found that there was an ISIS video that had popped into a recommendation feed in YouTube. And they felt like that Google should be held liable for recommending that content to users because it is aiding and abetting a terrorist organization and its mission to carry out a terrorist act. So they now, felt like that, that mere recommendation. Huh? Let me ask a couple questions. So A, sure. how did they get into the American Supreme Court? And did they have proof that the person committing the terrorist attack was radicalized by that video? Or did they just see the video on their Google and go, I'm mad about this. I'm suing. Yeah, I think that they had petitioned the courts and they were allowed to go and proceed bringing it in that way. And it was ultimately brought before the Supreme Court. And again, I think it's just the, it was the question that was being asked. That is why it was able to proceed, because you had differences of opinion that came down with the courts and they just kept appealing it up. And the Supreme Court was willing to take it up to listen, because this is a, a certainly a different kind of argument than what has historically been heard and what has been established by precedent over the years. So I think that's why the Supreme Court was ultimately interested in hearing this play out. They wanted to see what made sense here and if it was appropriate to go and hold Google liable for that recommendation, which I think to your, even if it is that, it is something that is technically protected. And I think that they shouldn't be held liable for that. And that's why I think that there were some encouraging signs that might suggest that's how the court might also feel. But I think the devil's in the details. But yeah, I think it was just that they appealed to court court was willing to go and hear it out. They just kept appealing it up in the Supreme Court where you have Justice Thomas, who's been certainly, I think, eager to hear something on Section 230, I think was very excited to jump at the bit on this. I think everybody was a little taken back that these were the first 
cases heard, while there are some other cases that are awaiting the Supreme Court to take it up. So it was definitely a little bit of a twist. I, I missed your answer. Did they see the video or did they, how did they prove that this was radicalizing terrorists or did nobody care about that? It just doesn't matter. It was on Google and they had their feelings hurt because of their loved one dying. No, they had seen video, the videos there. And that's what they were pointing to is that because that this video had been present and popped up in a suggestion feed that they were basically saying that Google was radicalizing people to go and join ISIS by having the videos featured as an edit, as a recommendation rather, on their website. And therefore, they should okay. be liable for that because the family seeking redress for a terrorist claim of a terrorist attack, right? Somewhere. And obviously, you're not going to really get it in many spots. So they're just trying to get it from where they think they can. Tenuous at best, but okay. Thank you for answering my question. Justice Thomas seems open to repealing Sullivan, according to the Radley Balco article that I read today. Justice Thomas's wife, obviously, is a character in several different plays on the world stage at this moment and around January 6th. He, where does he fall on it? It sounded like in some of the recaps that I read that Gorsuch was basically coaching them on how Google on how to win this case and several of the justices that, that it's probably going to land on the side of Section 230. Where are the different justices at and how careful should we be about reading tea leaves like that? Yeah, I think it's always something that we have to be cautious of when trying to read what the Supreme Court justices are asking in the form of questions or what they're saying. I think that you could try to gain some insights. And I think that there were some things that were telling there, but you can never be certain until the opinions come out. I personally prefer to let them speak for themselves there, but there were certainly some points of the conversations that were going down from the different justices. Justice Thomas and Alito were certainly fixated on the notion of neutral algorithms, if you will. So basically, Thomas was asking, hey, if I just go to YouTube in general, and it's just recommending content off the bat, like just broadly speaking, is that something that could be liable? And I think he was trying to just, he was trying to go and break out that this, that distinction that he feels like where there's a discrimination, perhaps like where, which would go and lend credence to a conservative bias or whatever, for what he was looking for, maybe versus a neutral, just plain old recommendation of a host of videos that you could go and pick from. So there was that kind of aspect. I think that Brett Kavanaugh raised a particularly good point when he was saying, if you were to go and read 230 in this fashion to open them up to liability here, it feels like it would defeat the purpose of the law in and of itself. And that doesn't seem to match up with Congress's intent here. And I do think that is very important. It makes sense for a guy who was also pretty critical in a Manhattan Corp decision to make these kinds of comments. So that was great to see. So I think that he's very cognizant of what the stakes are here. I think that Gorsuch is certainly trying to figure out where does section F4 kind of play into this, trying to figure out a distinction between an internet computer service versus an access software provider and whether or not like some of these distinctions between the different functions that they're doing may or may not open them up to liability. So I think that there was a lot of interesting conversations there. I think the one that was most surprising was Kintanji Brown Jackson, who I think was misreading a lot of what was going on there and didn't seem to understand like what was going on with 230. So that was a little disappointing, but I think, there's a lot of very interesting commentary there. I do think, in general, when it comes down to it, that Gonzalez should prevail. Depending on who you ask, that could look as good as 8-1. It could be 7-2 or, yeah, 7-2. I think that you have a lot of ranging opinions. It'll be interesting to see how it comes out. The opinions are going to be everything, I think, in this case. What they say in their opinions, I think, is going to serve as a guide 
for state legislators and federal legislators who want to go and craft bills targeting the statute as a result of that, because it would be an indication for what the court might find amenable should a challenge come up. Yeah, just to reframe that, basically, once they get a sense of where the court lays on this particular issue, then DeSantis in Florida, for instance, can then write a law. He's crafting a law to overturn Sullivan, for example, specifically to overturn it. And so it will be challenged so he can take it to the Supreme Court so he can win a primary in a presidential race. But once it is issued, then they have the ability to write a law at the state level and then take it to the Supreme Court and both sides will then fight. That seems to be how it worked with Dobbs. Eventually, it just kept doing what's called test cases, trying to get abortion overturned until finally Dobbs prevailed with the right makeup of the court. So you think Gonzalez will prevail? Is that overturning Section 230 or is that keeping it? Or how do you think? And obviously, you can't predict how they'll rule in these in the particular language. I just want to make yeah. sure we're clear on that. No, I'm sorry if I said the wrong name. I do think that Google is the side that will prevail in that case because it it just doesn't make sense to impose liability there. We had signed on to an amicus brief that was done by the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University that was highlighting why this matters. We think that underneath Section F, it is covered activity to go and recommend content and therefore Section 230 should apply and Google shouldn't be liable. I think that when you're looking at the economic states that are at play here, that it's, I think the court is ultimately going to feel that this is way too big of a question for the court to have to answer. And they're going to basically tell Congress that it's on to go and figure out what the solution is here, not the Supreme Court. And frankly, that is the better option, I think, than trying to have the high court dictate what's right here. And again, I don't think that Google should be exposed to liability here because one piece of content might have slipped through when Frankly speaking, these companies do take a lot of action, proactively speaking, to avoid having ISIS recruitment videos pop up on their platform. And to be honest, that's probably not a bad thing. Like, I don't think that people want to see ISIS recruitment videos on average. I don't think that we want to hold them liable for the one instance, let's say, or the rare instances that the terrorists got it right and it slipped through the cracks. And I think that's really what's at heart here. I'm Googling the ISIS song, use a Mandarin to recruit Chinese. It's a lot of news articles. Yeah, they must be filtering some of that stuff out. So let's talk Twitter v. Tamina. Give us the details on that particular case. Yeah, for Tamna v. Twitter, basically what we're looking at is an interpretation of the Anti-Terrorism Act and whether or not, again, Twitter could be held liable for aiding and abetting and in a substantial manner for a terrorist that was going to that was that was taking out a terrorist act in the process of carrying out a terrorist act rather sorry and that that's the primary question there it's not a 230 thing primarily this is just another statute question but it does have implication uh because again it would basically require twitter in the event of something like that if they were found liable i think it would basically resort in a lot more online verification let's say at a minimum if we want to make sure you're not a terrorist or something of that nature you could see definitely i think these online platforms being a lot more careful about who they let on which would have a chilling effect on speech in theory and also just broadly speaking when we're talking about terrorism and terrorists i keep thinking back to the old adage of one man's terrorist is another man's patriot you know what if russia were to sit there and deem the ukrainians a bunch of terrorists or something and then and say that they have to be taken down off of Twitter or you're going to be significantly aiding and abetting terrorists. I think that's the kind of nature of the question here. And again, I don't. it doesn't seem like even from the U.S.'s opinion, from the Solicitor General or Twitter's, or I think that there's not really a good claim there either. So I think that for the Supreme Court justices that we're hoping to get something good 
and they wanted to test it out with these cases. I think they fell a little bit short of expectation here in that sense. So that I think was a big takeaway. I think one thing I'll flag in terms of like justices and how they were looking at it is that it was a struggle of trying to apply offline analogies to an online setting. So a lot of that conversation centered around banks providing services to terrorists because there was a case that was reflecting around that. And there was tests to determine the culpability that the company could face for offering services. And I think that there's a significant difference between banks and obviously these tech platforms insofar as that banking services don't necessarily have as many deeply rooted ties to expressive activity and speech like these social media platforms do. So I think that's where some of the nuance is. I don't necessarily think it was teased out well. So I think that how that ruling will come down is a lot more up in the air than, let's say, how I might feel about Gonzalez v. Google. All right. Shameless self-promotion time. If we want to follow your commentary on this, where can we follow you? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me, you can go on Twitter and follow me at JamesCZ19. That's where I'm always putting up my random thoughts and latest things that I'm doing in this space. So thanks for having me on, Chris. It's always a fun time talking with you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us when you're in New Orleans and it's 6.30 p.m. and you're ready to go out and hit the French Quarter, eat some beignets, do God knows what. (laughs) We really do appreciate your time. Thanks. And thank you for listening here to the Chris Spangle Show. We truly do, truly do appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you again here on the Chris Spangle Show.